Hello and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. This week we have a special bonus episode related to the strength of confidence. Rick was fortunate enough to interview Dr. Paul Gilbert for his Foundations of Wellbeing online program, and we're sharing that interview in full today. Dr. Gilbert is a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Derby and the founder of Compassion-Focused Therapy. He's also been awarded the Order of the British Empire for his continued contribution to mental health care. In this episode, Dr. Gilbert shares how we can grow a healthy sense of self-worth, be honest without being critical, and stop undermining our own confidence. If you'd like to learn more about the Foundations of Wellbeing program, you can find it at www.thefoundationsofwellbeing.com. I'll also include a link to the site in the description of this episode. The conversation runs for about an hour, so it's a bit longer than most of our episodes. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, everybody. I'm Rick Hansen, and it gives me a great deal of pleasure, uh, both personally and professionally, uh, to be able to be speaking here with Dr. Paul Gilbert, who is the founder of Compassion Focused Therapy, as well as a major scholar, writer, therapist, trainer, and all-around good guy uh, when it comes to um, integrating uh, knowledge about the brain and evolution and very practical approaches, especially related to growing a sense of self-worth and healing uh, toxic shame. And we'll get into a lot of details about that here. A bit about Dr. Gilbert's background. He's the head of the mental research unit, as well as professor of clinical psychology there at the University of Derby. And um, he also is the author of many, many book chapters, many, many professional articles, as well as a number of books. Paul, who I'll use that term from now on, all has been distinguished with an order of the British Empire. He has trained hundreds of therapists, probably thousands at this point, if not more, who have also trained many other therapists. And there's really an interesting body of work developing around his approach, compassion-focused therapy, which is very well established in the research. So long story short, uh, Paul, it's a pleasure to be with you here today, and thank you for taking the time to do this. Well, it's a pleasure and honor to be with you too, Rick. Um, that's, this, is, this is lovely. Thank you. That's great. I can say in advance from having done, you know, a number of interviews, uh, one of the really wonderful things for me about uh, speaking with you is I really do learn a great deal uh, every time I talk with you. So diving in, I wonder if we could start with a question I ask just about everybody in, in this series, which is, you know, why has it been important for you personally to develop inner strengths, psychological resources, mental resources of various kinds? Why has it mattered to you? Well, I think it matters for a lot of reasons. Um, one of the reasons is the fact that we now know that the human brain is trainable, just like the body is trainable. You can train the mind, and in training the mind, you can change your brain. So it just makes a lot of sense that because our brains are often very chaotic and a bit of a mess, as you know, we call it a tricky brain, that if we learn to train the mind, it's more likely to, to kind of uh, function in the way that we want it to. So, for example, your mind is like a garden, right? It, it will grow come what may uh, if you don't do anything with it. But if you train it, if you cultivate certain things within your garden, then you may prefer the result than if you just let it uh, become whatever uh, it becomes by accident. Almost. So training the mind is essential really for helping us deal with some of the 
difficult emotions and experiences that go on in, 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 in it. I wonder if I could get a little more personal information from you related to that, but a frame of that could be the next question I'd like to explore, which is that we're going to be talking about um, the confidence pillar of uh, well-being, which is an umbrella term, which has to do from, with, to me with growing resources, with resourcing yourself related to our fundamental needs for connection. And that's an umbrella term, confidence for things like self-worth, feeling cared about, and working through and eventually clearing out major issues of inadequacy or shame. So that's the overall heading. And um, I wonder how you got interested in this territory. I wonder if you could say a little bit about your own background, including ways in which it was important to you in your own journey as a child and then through adulthood to develop resources inside to feel more confident yourself. I I find myself wondering, were you always confident or did you grapple with issues of inadequacy or what was your own journey here? Um, yeah, that's interesting. I think most people do at some point in their lives, don't they? They kind of compare themselves to others and have a, you know, wonder about things. I mean, I was a, a child born to uh, post-war parents, and many parents uh, of my generation were very traumatized by the war. And as a result of that, they had their own emotional difficulties. So I think growing up with parents who clearly have those difficulties attune you to the fact that, you know, there are issues that are going on there that you want to kind of sort out. I mean, it was once stated that I think clinical psychologists, 80% of them had depressed mothers or something. So we're all My mother, try- I would say, definitely went through periods of depression. So, yeah, so we get attracted to these things because we experience them in one way or another, either in ourselves or in our relationships with people who are close to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's important. But I think um, I was originally an economist, actually. I, I started as an economist, and then I changed to do psychology, and I wanted to very much uh, work in, with with helping people. And I think that's partly of kind of the person one is, really. Um, so I got interested in it because I was uh, very interested in depression, partly because depression is a very strange condition. Many, many people suffer from it, but I, it doesn't make a lot of sense from an evolutionary point of view. So when I was in Edinburgh, that's what I was starting to study, just why do people get depressed? How is that possible? I mean, it doesn't do us any good. It seems to be an enormous disadvantage to survival. And... Um, <clears throat> I went through a period where I had my own um, depression. I had a depression related to um, some rather serious problems I had at the time to do with being treated very unfairly, sitting on a lot of anger that I probably shouldn't have sat on. Uh, So that became very interesting. And um, I remember uh, waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning having the most horrendous panic attacks and not being able to... How old were you, if I could ask? uh, uh, 23, 24, something like that. (laughs) And <laughs> not being able to get on the bus. I had to get a taxi to work. I couldn't get on the bus. You know, it's ridiculous. I was lucky in the sense that I had some experience of mindfulness. Not a lot, but a little bit. So I was able to be a little bit of an observer. Like, well, what is my body doing now? This is crazy. Why would it do that? You know, why am I shaking? Why are my knees going up and down? You know, so that was kind of helpful. And I had a a wonderful uh, wife who was very matter of fact, and she said, "Oh, don't worry about it. It'll, you'll get over it. It'll pass. These things happen, you know." <laughs> I said, "Oh, well, fair enough. Then. Just let it go." And um, 
But it taught me a lot of stuff, right? It taught me a lot about depression in the sense that depression often, not always, but often you, you can be sitting on a great sense of injustice or rage or uh, you can feel kind of powerless to do things. You can feel very thwarted in life. You can feel you've made the wrong decisions. You've taken the wrong turn here and all of that stuff. But um, it, at the end of the day, it's recognizing that actually as long as you don't condemn yourself, as long as you keep your relationship with yourself reasonably friendly, it will pass. When it becomes very toxic, it's when you turn to become an enemy of yourself. So that every time you slip over or you slip up, you kick yourself, you hit yourself, you criticize yourself, you put yourself down. When that happens, then you are really in, in difficulty because there is no way of you healing, recovering, because every time you start to heal a little bit, um, then the critic comes and whacks you once again. Yeah. So that was a very important personal journey mm. through depression, even suicidal thoughts and all of that mm. stuff. Uh, but it actually set me up for uh, a, a new insight into the, the psychology of depression, actually. Yeah. So in your own process, you were born in Africa. You have a really interesting personal history. Your dad uh, was a airplane mechanic during World War II, quite rattled by what happened, went to Africa, was a mechanic there as well. So you got to see a lot of really interesting things. You went off to boarding school when you were about 12, and uh, then you landed at this point, as you say, in your mid-20s with a kind of personal crisis. And speaking about the internal self-critic or that process, if you will, of self-criticism, self-attacking, and its role in depression, um, I wonder if at that point, um, maybe experiences in uh, Africa growing up, perhaps positive, experiences at boarding school, perhaps negative, where were you at in terms of your own internalized uh, inner critic, broadly defined, at the point you were going through this in your mid-20s? Well, I was kind of lucky in a way because my critic was never particularly harsh. I mean, certainly um, it was there. Uh I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think probably the boarding school experience set the seeds for the later depression because coming out of Africa where I was completely free and a happy-go-lucky chap to living in this incredibly restrictive, almost hostile place in a way as it was. Boarding school. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to, you know, we used to get caned a lot in those days. And, yeah, uh, with sticks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, the cane or the sort of so um, I'm sure the seeds of my depression were, 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 were planted there. Obviously, my parents being in Africa, I didn't see them that much. So it was suddenly very, yeah. you know, separated from people I, uh, I cared about. So uh, so those seeds kind of do kind of grow underground. They're little sort of uh, creepers. Um, so often we are primed to uh, experience depression when some crisis comes along that sets up the whole thing again. Um, so yes, I agree with you. I think probably it was from that time. But I, did, I was lucky in the sense that I never really had a vicious critic. I had a, a critic that said, well, you should have done that better or you could have done better, that better. But not vicious, not in the way that I meet in some depressed people where it is really an unpleasant um, process. Yeah. I really appreciate your willingness to go personal here and um, feel very free to bounce me back, you know, if, if it's too much. Um, but I, I find myself wondering, there you are in your mid-20s. I know your own personal story can speak to a lot of people. Um, and then 
you know, there was a course correction or development, something started shifting. Uh, what resources, as it were, did you start developing in yourself in your mid-20s um, to deal with this internalized critic as well as your bottled up anger at injustice, as well as any other factors that were making you feel bad and depressed? What did you grow inside yourself that helped? Okay, well, that's that's important. I mean, inter- the other thing, just to give a plug, I mean, I also wrote... You know, there's the third edition of the Overcoming Depression book. And, of course, in that, in the preface, I talk a lot about this because you can't write books on depression unless you're going to come clean about the fact you have a little bit of an experience. I don't think mine was as serious as some of the people uh, I've worked with, but it wasn't, you know, it was pretty unpleasant. So what were the resources? Well, I think one of the key resources, right, one of the most important resources is learning to be honest. I think depressed people struggle with being honest. They they hide from their true feelings. Sometimes it is about anger. Sometimes it's about grieving. Sometimes it's about yearning. Uh, so learning how to actually be honest about what one feels without being critical and just accept that that is what one feels. So for me, I'd always been a person who tried to be a friendly, sort of happy-go-lucky person. So for my my big issue was coming to terms of the fact that I could also have intense rage. That was quite a quite tricky for me because, you know, I, I just didn't see myself as that kind of person. But it was a real sort of growing up actually um, part for me. That was the first thing. So learning to be honest about what one feels. With acceptance, I think you're saying. With acceptance, yeah. yeah. This accept the dark side. <laughs> doesn't mean you act it out, but you can accept no. it and be honest with yourself. Yeah. Yes. The more you are aware of it, I mean, the less likely you are to act it out because you can make a choice then. You know, if you, if you, if, if you don't kind of accept it and work with it, it can kind of, you know, just come out when you don't want it to really. So, uh, so that was the first thing. Um, the second thing was um, we was doing a lot of cognitive therapy at the time, and that was very helpful, just paying attention to the way I was thinking and what I was doing and learning to talk to myself as if I was talking to a friend. And I developed ideas about, you know, imagining some guru uh, person who would maybe talk to me. And I think probably I... And I developed that because my father was a sort of slightly distant character. And certainly when I came to boarding school, I mean, there wasn't any father figures around. So that was a an element that I missed. So I kind of created one. And I found that really quite helpful. Of course, people use religion in the same way, don't they? They imagine a God that loves them and talk mm-hmm. to God. So many people use uh, compassionate images to try to imagine feeling that uh, you know, someone stronger, more powerful than you cares about you. Those are quite useful um, ways of working. And we now have in compassionate focus therapy actual practices where you actually imagine some compassionate other relating to you. So I was just sort of feeling my way around all of this stuff and also um, being able to draw on the, the strengths of people around me and being able to be grateful for that. Um, Sometimes depressed people feel they have to go it alone or they can't own up to the fact that they need others to support them or help them and they're not able to be grateful. Sometimes they can be resentful that they need other people. But um, I was very lucky in in that sense of um, having people around me who were very supportive, uh, who were obviously upset about the fact I was struggling quite a bit. But we just kept saying, yeah, it'll be okay, you'll be okay, you know, this is this is quite natural. I think the thing that 
was very helpful to me was that because Gene knew what had happened to me and it was wasn't good actually. The injustice uh, that was done to you. Yeah, yeah. She was able to say, look, you know, why wouldn't you feel like this? Of course you're gonna feel like this. Don't worry about it. You know, just give yourself time, you get over it. So this not trying to analyze it in any depth, but just saying, Yes. <laughs> of course you feel like, you know, yeah. you know. Um, acceptance so this, again. This acceptance was normalizing, really, really yeah. normalizing accepting. Uh, that was extremely helpful to, for me. And then in the end, I thought, oh, bugger, well, perhaps I'll just forget about it then and let it go away. And it did. Well, I so appreciate your willingness to just um, kind of lay it out here. And um, before we go on, I, I just have to ask, and again, not to pry, just whatever you're willing to say. So what you said there about this internal nurturing figure, uh, I sometimes use the phrase the caring committee inside your head. So you can have multiple, of course, internal figures. And it's interesting that you spoke of it in reference to your father uh, and uh, a figure that maybe, if I may say, had a paternal or masculine quality while being nurturing. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit. You're one of the very first people I've heard of talking about an internal caring figure in this more paternal slash quote-unquote masculine kind of framing, if I hear you correctly. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how that was helpful to you. Yes, I mean, I was making it up as I went along. I mean, I didn't have, uh, you know, I knew a little bit about Jung and uh, the archetypal father and that sort of stuff, but uh, it just seemed to me that particularly for my generation, whose parent, many parents had been through the war, a lot of these guys were very, very traumatized, and they weren't emotionally present for their sons, right? Or so, daughters too, probably. Or, or daughters too, yeah. Um, although, although I'm not a daughter as far as I know. <laughs> no, as a son. So, um, yeah, for their children, I should say, perhaps is better. So that leaves us with an archetypal thwarting, uh, archetypal emptiness, because basically, archetypally, you know, we are biologically orientated to form relationships to a mother and a father. And um, so if the father is available but not present, I think it's different if the father isn't there at all, and then you, that's a different kind of thing. Maybe I don't know, but if they're there but they're not there, I think that's really difficult because then you have what is called the the, the wanted but abandoning object. In other words, you want to have the relationship with this person, but they're not able to provide it, or what they provide perhaps isn't so so hot. But not through any fault of their own. I mean, it's not that the, the lack of wanting to; it's just that because of their own trauma and so on, it's very difficult for them to provide that. So. This wanting, but actually the, that person is not able to provide, leaves that kind of gap for you. So it's about recognizing that, I think. Uh, and it could be the mother figure. It doesn't have to be the father figure. Uh, and then thinking, about, okay, so that's interesting. So what can we do about that? And uh, so uh, that's why sometimes, obviously, people, as I say, turn to religion because God fills that gap for them, perhaps, or whatever it is. But you can begin to begin to create your own internal Father representation. Begin to imagine what that would be like and how that would be like to relate to that. Now, people will say, "Yeah, but that's a fantasy. You create. It's not a real." But the point about it is, the fantasy is powerful enough to stimulate the brain. You know, if you if you lay in bed and have a sexual fantasy, it doesn't have to be anybody there. It's enough to stimulate the brain, and that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to stimulate things in your in your mind, in your brain, by using these images, by cultivating these feelings within you, and and you're doing that because you're trying to heal, uh, maybe some kind of wound within. Yeah. 
Well, it's so well said. And um, in the foundations program, we talk about the two-stage process of the neuropsychology of learning from state to trait, activation to installation. And deep down in the bowels of the brain, those little structure building machines uh, don't know what the source of a state is. They don't know what the source. Yeah. So you were, there was a lack there in you, maybe as well, some wounding around the absence of the good. Right. Yeah. Of that kind of fathering it would have been nice to have received. And I know you deliver as a father yourself, um, you know, and so you felt you filled that lack in part by repeatedly experiencing and internalizing, thus encoding, installing in your brain these beneficial experiences. So, yeah. OK, good. Wow. Well, thank you again. I mean, I'm, I, as I say, I've written about this before, and I think that all of us are on this journey called life, which many of us find difficult and these these aren't about getting having mental illnesses they're about how do we deal with the tragedies of life the disappointments of life the hurts of life and this is how your brain deals with it i mean it's not abnormal there's nothing wrong with you but uh the brain naturally can create pain it's just like if you fall over and break a leg it's going to hurt you well there's nothing wrong unfortunately you've got your leg broken but there was nothing wrong with the leg. It's just responding naturally to the injury, and the pain is natural to the injury. So, it's understanding these what you would, as you would say, Rick, these normalizing processes that we we can be intense pain without having to think, oh my goodness, there's something wrong with me. No, it's just that you're in, you're in pain and you're hurting. Yeah, that's good. Very helpful. Okay. Well, then um, to take it a step further, and our appreciate what you've been saying there about your own personal history. You've developed a very powerful framework um, that has three primary aspects to it related to the evolution of the brain as a way of thinking about three interacting uh, systems in the mind-brain process uh, rooted in evolution and that have a lot of implications for how we can get hurt and how we can get healed, uh, if you will. And so I kind of wonder if you could walk us through each one of those uh, three systems and how they work together. And, uh, and then we'll start talking more practically about what people can do with this understanding. Yes. Okay, so there are two, two, two key things really. Firstly is to distinguish uh, motivation from emotion. So motivation is the thing that guides you. So you could be motivated to make a lot of money or to be a good parent or to be a footballer or a tennis star. So these are the things that guide you. And then according to how you're doing with your motives, um, you'll have different feelings, right? So if you're motivated to be a good tennis player and you find that you're not very good at it, then you might feel sad about that. But if you're not motivated to be a good tennis player, that it really doesn't bother you that you can't serve very well. That's me. So, <laughs> so motives are very important. So this brings us to... So what are what are our motives, right? And of course, we can be motivated to be better than other people. We can be motivated to uh, compete with other people. We can be motivated to prove to other people how wonderful we are, how worthwhile we are. Those are interesting motives. And according to how well and badly you think you're doing it, that you will experience your emotion. So if you feel you're not doing very well, and other people are better than you, and you're failing or you feel defeated, you're going to feel bad. But there is other motivational systems which are related to what we call compassion, which are to do with the desire to be helpful to other people wherever you can. 
and to treat others with uh, respect and kindness and support, including yourself. Now, that's an important motive because the more that that works for you, the better you're going to feel. So how does the three systems operate? Well, what we know is that there are three basic systems which you've written about extensively yourself, one of which is your threat system. And your threat system is designed to be activated whenever there's a threat. Uh, the interesting thing about it, though, is it's your most powerful system, and it's the system that will very easily take over your brain. So anxiety and, and uh, anger are the two easiest emotions to recruit. And this is clear. I mean, they just come unwanted often. No one lays in bed thinking, do you know what? I need more rage in my life. I, I'm just not having enough panic attacks, you know. So these come unbidden, and they can often come with quite a powerful force in the body. And we often use the example, don't we, of the Christmas shoppers. So if you go Christmas shopping and nine people are kind to you in the shops and they help you find your present, but then one person is very rude to you, they uh, make you wait and then you give them $20 and they give you change for 10 and then they say, ah, oh, sir, I can't tell you how many people try and pull that trick on me. You know, you, So you come out of the shop steaming, really cross and frustrated. That anger will stick. Now you talk about this, don't you, Rick? You talk about... You know, your brain is like um, Teflon for positive and Velcro for negative, you see. So the anger and frustration that sticks and you ruminate about it and should you write to the store manager and you talk to your partner about it and then they get angry on your behalf. Yes, they treated you so badly. And, and as you yourself point out, you know, 90% of the people were kind to you, though. What happened to that? So the threat system is designed to take control of your mind but it also is designed for things to stick. So that's not your fault. That's the way the system is designed. And if you don't do anything about it, it can lead you a, a happy old dance as you ruminate and get stuck in anger or anxiety or worry or whatever. Then we have two very different types of positive emotion, which, again, you have written substantially about. One is the emotions of excitement. So if you win the lottery you know, or something really good happens to you, somebody you love agrees to marry you or a job you really want, they say, you're the person for us, all those things. So you get excited. And excitement gives you a burst of dopamine, all that stuff. And that too will take over your mind. So you'll have intrusions and thoughts and your mind will keep coming back to it. So if you do win, say, the American lottery and you're worth $100 million, you're going to find that very difficult to put out of your mind. It'll keep coming back. Oh, my God, $100 million. This is amazing, right? So the, the, the drive system uh, has a tendency to take control as well. And, of course, some people can become very addicted to drive. They need to achieve all the time. They need to be excited all the time. They get bored very easily. They have to be on their computers playing games all the time. So we need the buzz, you know. If we don't get the buzz, we go back to this sort of threat system of feeling slightly anxious, slightly irritable, slightly, you know. But then there is another very different type of positive emotion, which is the positive emotion of basically contentment. And contentment means that you are not in the state of drive, you're not seeking things, you're not celebrating achievements or looking forward to things. Everything is fine as it is, and you just feel at peace and chilled out. And we know that that system is a parasympathetic system. It uses a different uh, range of physiological processes in the body. 
And that system is turned on in different ways. Now, one of the ways, of course, is what you have talked about, is being mindful. Mindfully slowing the breath, mindfully paying attention to the body, mindfully being present, has the effect of just letting those other two systems, the threat and the drive, settle, because you're not constantly fueling them, you see? So that's one aspect. Another aspect that we know helps to produce this slowing, this calming, this experience of inner contentment and peacefulness is affection and affiliation. So if you imagine a, a child who's very distressed, what they do is they return to the parent, the parent picks them up, gives them a hug, whispers gently in their ear, nice kind voice, they don't shout in the ear, they have a nice kind voice, you're going to be okay, blah, blah, blah. And this calms the child down. And we actually know now that evolution has created mammals, and in particular humans, to be very, very regulated by affiliative and friendly relationships. So the friendly relationships are important. So this is, in, this is important because what it means is if you develop those signals in your own head, if you practice generating those signals that have that sense of calming, slowing, with kind tones, um, you're going to be stimulating the system in your brain. And if you do that repeatedly, this will bring these other two systems under some kind of balance. So the three systems then are threat, which are designed to take over. Drive does the same thing to a degree. And the soothing system, however, is the system which actually helps balance these two. That's a bit of a bit of a long... No, that's very interesting. Um, well, so a couple things. So can you imagine the threat system activating uh, functionally in terms of motivation, as you put it, without uh, significant negative emotions of anxiety or anger? To give an example, um, I think about, <clears throat> um, let's say, a parent watching a child just beginning to learn how to swim in a pool and venturing away from the side, having grown up in pools in Southern California. These are familiar experiences for me. And the parent's very watchful, definitely averting threat, very vigilant, but without significant anxiety. Or I think of myself rock climbing or being in wilderness where I'm moving through dangerous ground, uh, but I don't feel scared. I feel really zeroed in on what the threats are, you know, how close I am to the edge of the cliff, loose rock, what have you. But I'm not bothered around it. And I would have to say as well, there isn't a particularly strong sense of um, affiliative soothing, you know, of relational involvement. There's not a particularly strong sense of um, drive fulfilling reward, you know, you know, but in these examples I'm giving, there's not a ton of dopamine or a ton of oxytocin. It's just that the threat system is pursuing its aims in a relatively calm uh, and resourced Way. So I wondered if it's possible to engage the threat system uh, without tipping into, you know, I call it the red zone, of uh, significant fear or anger that's sort of invaded the core of the person. Well, it's a great question because it depends what you mean by threat because at that point you could say you're not under any threat. You're engaging in activities which are to some degree exciting. Now, excitement is an interesting question because some people get excitement by Jake jumping out of aircraft, skydiving. It's a lovely saying, actually, which is, if at first you don't succeed, skydiving is not for you. <laughs> <laughs> but let's imagine that. Now, the point about that is you need some kind of threat in order to be excited, right? 
So you can't be excited in those kind of contexts without some kind of threat. So what you're doing when you're rock climbing is you're experiencing mastery. So you're not experiencing threat because you're experiencing yourself mastering your environment. So there isn't, a, you know, so there's there's nothing to be threatened by because although there are potential threats around, you could slip or whatever it is. As you are working, as you're walk climbing, you're and actually mastering it, and you're enjoying the sensations and so on and so on. If it suddenly started to pour with rain and you thought you were at risk of a flash flood, that would change the game. Because at this point, you're not now in control. You're not the master of your actions. And uh, at that point, your threat system would allow you to the fact that you watch out because there really is serious danger. So while you're mastering your environment, you don't see there to be any... It's okay. You, you don't see any serious dangers. Yeah, uh we can explore this, I'm sure, in some depth. I just think of lots of examples where people cognitively recognize that they're threatened. Maybe they're in a work environment or they're driving in dense traffic. They know they're threatened. And at some level, even they feel threatened, like including me in outdoor environments where I, I knew I was threatened and I felt threatened, while at the same time sustaining a strong sense of feeling internally resourced, clear, calm, determined, gritty, but not flooded with fear and anger while still functionally, you know, managing the threat. And I just, I just kind of want to call out that possibility for people. Yes, absolutely. No, no, that's absolutely right. And it comes back to this idea of, of coping or mastery or managing that what you regard as the belief in yourself that yes, there is a threat, but I can cope with this. I can do this, right? It's the point at which you think, but actually maybe I can't. That's when the thing. So because there's a lot of uh, situations in life, but of course there are potential threats around. I mean, even walking across the road, you know, there's always a, a potential threat. But we don't constantly relate to that high level of anxiety. People with general anxiety do, actually. They find it very difficult to experience what you're experiencing. Many, many things kind of make them feel threatened. But this idea about recognizing that there are potential threats around and you have to be cautious, you have to be, you know, paying attention to what you're doing, but you're not in a state of anxiety at that point. I think this is a very important um, uh, question because it's going to lead on to what you're probably going to ask a bit later on, which is about confidence. So, what is it that gives you the confidence that you can trust your own decision making while you're driving in the snow, or whatever it is? And it's that confidence, to some degree, in your actions which are uh, important. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a great segue. So, using your model now, um, and I've seen pictures where you kind of draw that out with cross arrows. You know, let's say we have. In your model, threat, let's say, and a, you know, reward seeking, and then affiliation, social experiences, and I use language like safety, satisfaction, connection. But anyway, how is that system related to the development of feelings of inadequacy, yeah, or shame, or depression, all kind of mushed together? And then uh, we'll get into how to use your model uh, in the healing process. Uh, and the acquisition of greater and greater confidence. Okay, so here's an interesting, here's an interesting thing, right? Um, about two million years, humans started to get smart, right? So, um, and we often use the example of the zebra running away from the lion, and then the 
the zebra gets away, and once they're away, that's the end of the anxiety. They can't smell it, they can't see it, they can't hear it. So there's no stimulus driving the threat system. Yeah. But humans, because they have this two million year old capacity for thinking, reflecting, monitoring, they start thinking. Yeah, well, supposing I had it fallen over, then I would have been caught. And can you imagine being eaten alive by a lion? Oh my God, that's just terrible. Oh my God, I just, oh, can you imagine? And what about if there are two lions tomorrow? And then, well, why did I come and live in this godforsaken place anyway? It's full of lions. What a stupid ass I am, you know. <laughs> round and round and round we go because of this stuff, right? So what's the, int the interesting point is that a lot of what happens with loss of confidence is that we undermine whatever confidence we may have. It's not creating confidence, it's stopping to uh, stop undermining your confidence. Right. One of the things that we humans evolve is a self-monitoring system. The ability to monitor your actions, your thoughts, everything about you at any point in time. So you'll never see a chimpanzee sitting under a tree, taking their pulse, monitoring their body thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have a heart attack. doesn't happen, right? You'll never, as far as we know, see a chimpanzee sitting under a tree thinking, do you know what? I really messed up yesterday. I bet all those chimpanzees over there really don't like me anymore. What the hell am I going to do? Uh, I've got to try and get my reputation back. It just doesn't happen, right? Humans have an amazing capacity for monitoring just about everything. And that monitoring system Sometimes it's linked to the default mode, but that monitoring system is the system that actually can begin to cause you a lot of trouble because the way in which you monitor is you're monitoring that actually there's a problem rather than you're doing okay. So when you're driving in the fog, you're monitoring yourself, but you're able to think, so, well, I've done this before. It's okay. I know what I'm doing. I'm quite happy. Whereas if you're monitoring to up the level of danger, and to undermine your driving ability, oh my goodness, I've never done this before, and isn't this where people crash? They crash in the fog. What happens if somebody's not driving with any lights? What am I going to do then? Then that starts to undermine your confidence. So this is where self-criticism becomes very important because people often monitor themselves, and because the threat system tends to be focusing on the negative, which you call a negativity bias, if you're not careful, it'll automatically start monitoring you for what you're not doing, how badly you're doing, where all your problems are. Just like the uh, Christmas shoppers, instead of monitoring all the good that you're doing, it'll start monitoring where the threats are because that's what the threat system is designed to do. And therefore, that is what undermines whatever confidence you might have. So it's coming back to the points that you make so brilliantly well in your books, really, is learning how to notice this self-monitoring system and how it naturally tends to monitor mm -hmm. the problem the deficit, the difficulty, because that's what it's designed to do. But that's not what you want it to do. So how you take control over it and start to focus on what you would call focus on the good, focusing on what you can do, rather than letting your self-monitoring system undermine your confidence. If you stop undermining confidence, confidence will naturally grow. Wow, that is so interesting to think of the self-critic as... Um, you know, self-monitoring gone bad in a sense, yeah. you know, over yeah. the edge, too far and negatively driven. And just to flag as well, I'm sure you'd agree that self-monitoring is relevant for reward seeking as well yeah. as contentment seeking or broadly uh, affiliative processes. And yeah. I'm sure you'd also agree as well that contentment can arise 
independent of relational field experiences. Yeah. Right. Just so people are tracking these differences. Yeah. 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 All right. So let's start using this. uh, Like I want to use the toy, the toolbox here. I want to play with all the toys. Um, How do you help people, um, you know, shift out of self-criticism and into what I call self-guidance? So it's the same end accomplished through better means. Right. And then, and also how do you help people heal, including, frankly, quite intense um, uh, shame-based tendencies inside their own mind. Okay, so that... (laughs) A lot there. Yeah, just a little five-minute question there. Oh, yeah, well, we'll Uh, just do it in pieces. It's like biting the elephant in small pieces, eating strawberries. So let me tell you, this is a story that I that you know well, and I'll tell it again because I think your, your listeners will be interested yeah. in this. You know, we used to do, uh, well, I still do, um, co- some co- cognitive therapy things, and we would help people to look at negative, the negative thoughts and then generate alternatives, you know. So people who were depressed would think, I'm a failure, I'm no good. And then you say, well, yeah, but if a friend was to describe you, well, how would they describe you? Would they see you as an honest person, a caring person? Uh, yeah. would, you know, what is it about? you that they want to be your friend blah 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 blah, or whatever and so you can get people to do this and what we found is that people could come up with alternative thoughts like um okay so yes my my friend does care about me and i've been good to her or him and yes i i managed to keep down a job and i have a family that seemed to love me or whatever there are alternatives and i have been happy in the past as well but what we discovered was that if you ask people what is the emotional tone when you say that in your head? It turned out that a lot of depressed people, it was very hostile. So they were generating alternative thoughts, mm. right? Like, okay, so I know I'm not a failure because I should have a friend that really cares about me. But they'd say this, right? Okay, so you're depressed, right? But look at the evidence, right? You got a friend, haven't you? You got people to care about you, haven't you? <laughs> Wow. We, wow. So we thought, okay, that's not so good. So we said to some people, look, well, um, what about if you just create a kind voice? So you got you got your alternative thoughts. You can see that actually you're not as bad as you think you are. So just create a really kind voice that says, look, you know, um, you have friends that care about you, and they generally do. And what we discovered was a lot of our depressed patients couldn't do it. They mm-hmm. could not generate a kind voice. They just couldn't generate the kind tones themselves. They thought they didn't deserve it. They thought it was weak. It was stupid. It was 101 reasons why they couldn't do it. So we did a very simple thing, which was simply train people in voice tones. So we'd get them to slow the breath, because obviously that's a big parasympathetic stuff, and then just slowly soothing. Mm-hmm. Soothing, yeah, soothing the body. Uh, and if you if you if you deepen and slow the breath, try to get it around five to six breaths per minute really focusing on that, doing that very mindfully, paying attention to breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. But then, on the out-breath, say hello to yourself. And you can practice this yourself, right? Sit for 15 seconds saying hello to yourself in a neutral way. So you would say, hello, Rick. Or in a friendly way, it would be, hello, Rick. Right? Just practice what happens when you create those different voice tones. Mm. A friend of mine, Russell Notes, says that, Colt says that um, voice tone is great because imagine I have something, I say something like, you know, everybody wants to be happy. And I can say it like that, everybody wants to be happy. Or I could say it contemptuously, everybody wants to be happy. Or I could say it 
sexy. Everybody wants to be happy, right? The voice tone that you create in your head is really key to how it lands in your emotional brain, right? So there's no point just thinking alternative thoughts if it's landing in your emotional brain in a hostile way. So the first thing then is how do you learn to create a friendly voice? The tone is as important as the content of your alternative thinking, and you can practice that. Just breathing, saying hello to yourself, thinking of an or thinking of something that's very helpful to you, and just practice imagining you or somebody who really cares about you saying it slowly and with a very affiliative, caring voice. Simple, simple. But what do you think? Very, what do you find practical. are some of the key sentences or words? that uh, really help for people to practice saying to themselves and internalizing, of course, especially to deal with feelings of inadequacy uh, and shame. Okay. So, okay, so we've got, we've, we're beginning to get the textures that we're wanting to, so now you're wanting to move into the content. So what is the content of what people actually do? So a lot depends upon what the shame is about. Now, you know that in our model, we help people recognize Right? that the reason that we are vulnerable to anxiety and depression and self-criticism and all the other stuff is because of the way the brain is. It's not your fault. You know? It's helping people realize that if you get depressed, it's not your fault. If you get anxious, it's not your fault. Right? So the first thing is really helping people stand back and realizing that the reason they're getting depressed or anxious is partly because human brains do that. I mean, all over the world, you know, there's saying like 300 million people who are depressed right now. I mean, that's probably an underestimate. Oh, yeah. This is what human brain, brains do. It's not your fault. So the first thing then is helping people really come to terms with the fact that the human brain is really, really tricky, right? So that's the first thing. So the next thing then is beginning to look at the fact that what sits behind self-criticism or what sits behind shame? Now, usually, but not always, what sits behind it is a fear of rejection, the fear of disconnection, that if you really knew about me, actually, you wouldn't like me. If you really knew what went on in my head, actually, you wouldn't, you, you, you'd think I'm not worth caring about, right? The story here is that there's nothing that can go on in your head that probably hasn't gone on in the heads of millions of other people at some point in human history. Because this is what brain does. It doesn't matter how violent it is, how sexually deviant it is, or whatever it is. These things go on, right? Because human brains do that. The most important thing is what you said earlier, is that if you become mindful, then you don't act them out. Because a lot of the stuff that goes on in our heads should not be acted out, right? That's absolutely true. But the brains create these kinds of stuff because it's our brains are crazy. So the moment you start to not criticize yourself i sorry the moment you start to learn to be kind to yourself to see what's behind the critic usually some kind of fear of rejection that i'm not good enough i'm not lovable i'm not i'm not this or not that or i have these thoughts or i have those thoughts or i've done this or i've done that that's what sits behind the critic which is that this real fear the critic is driven mostly usually by the fear that if you don't do this, if you're not good enough, then nobody's going to like you. You're not worthy in God's eyes or somebody's eyes. So the healing of self-criticism is to heal what drives it, what really sits behind it. What are you really, really frightened of? 
what is this criticism really pushing you towards, right? And when you begin to understand that, then you see like the Wizard of Oz, if you like. You see what sits behind the critic. And compassion always goes to the fear that sits behind the critic. That's such a powerful statement, Paul. So um, people would get in touch increasingly with, be mindful of, as it were, uh, the fears uh, behind that internal attacking process. And, um, and uh, then what would happen as well is they would bring compassion to themselves, that wish that a being not suffer applied to oneself, right? Uh, or bring compassion to parts of themselves, even like the hurting child inside. Is that more or less correct? What your yeah. approach is? What's wrong? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I've got it here. Um, go on, yeah. please. Now, I'll, I'll, you know, you asked me to give some personal examples. Let me give you a personal right. example. Um, 2008, 2009, I'd just finished the Compassion in Mind book, but I hadn't sent it off. And my father was dying of cancer. Now, I mentioned my father was tricky character but he, I also you know loved him very much um, and so uh, he was dying of lung cancer and my mother sadly was dementing so I had to sort of not work on the book very much and go back and um, try and help with the family which was a very difficult time so anyway Army, was he in Africa at the time no no he'd, he'd been back in England now okay. since he retired he, he was in his 80s he was 88 when he died he would came back to England when he was in his 60s. So he'd been back a long time and, you know. Uh, uh, so anyway, so there we are. So it was very stressful. And then, uh, sadly, he passed away one morning. And that was very, very difficult. So I came back to the Derby where I, where I am. And um, <clears throat> a couple of days later, still having to get this book sent off, you know, because I was overdue. And I wasn't terribly happy with it because it was a bit too big and, all the usual things that you know so well. Anyway, so the morning came for me to finally email it all to the publishers and my um, computer or my internet server decided it wasn't going to do it. So everything I send back, it bounced back. Now in that moment, I'm embarrassed to say this, I had a rage attack. I said some very naughty four-letter words, shouting at the top of my head, how can you do this to me at today of all days? Don't you know what I've been through? You effing, effing, effing. All of that lovely, wonderful stuff. The room was nice, colored blue. And um, thereupon, I jumped in my car and drove off down the road because I had to get to work, right? Whereupon, I suddenly remembered my poor wife was in the house, and then a little critic turns up. Oh, so then, Paul, you've just written a book on passion have you look at you you're mad you're crazy you've completely lost control of your impulses you've been squaring swearing and shouting you know you, you you're just a fake man you're a complete fake right so so now i've got and <laughs> now i've got this little critic going off in my head but luckily luckily i had been practicing for many years compassionate processing and so the compassionate voice turned up and the compassionate voice says immediately look this is not your fault, right? It's not your fault. You've just been through a really terrible time. This is going to happen, right? It's not your fault. All you need to do is slow down, slow down, go to the side of the road, just take a time out, phone your wife, tell her you're really sorry, make sure she's okay, because you always have to take responsibility. There's no ducking responsibility. If Even you when you're being compassionate to yourself. Yeah, yeah, important. compassionate is you always take responsibility. So that's exactly what I did. I phoned home. My wife said, oh, yeah, I was kind of worried about you. Thank you so much for phoning. That was fine. I sat and had a cry. 
kind, calmed right down and then carried on my way and I was okay. So the key thing about compassion, right, compassion has to be there when it's tough, you know. Compassion has to be there when the shit hits the fan. Compassion has to be there when you're not at your best. Because when you're not at your best, that's when your critic is going to turn up all fancy dancy. Okay, so there you are. You see, you're no good really, right? Yeah. That's the time when you need the compassion to come in and say, look, okay, I haven't done very well. This isn't really what I want. I don't want to be a raging idiot like that. I don't want that. I don't want that. That's not what I want. I want to get, so I want to get back to my true intent, as the Dalai Lama would say. My true intent is to be a calm, reasonable person. And I kind of lost it. So compassion at this moment is to understand that actually the reason I lost it is because I was being very anxious about not getting the book in on time. I found under a lot of pressure. I've had a lot of trouble with, you know, coming to terms with my dad's death and so on and so on. That compassion of understanding is essential for allowing us to deal with the less good sides of our personality. And if we do that on a regular basis, we will gradually calm down. We become more self-accepting. We constantly come back to what is the person I want to be? What person do I want to be? What am I trying to cultivate here? And, and then that is what leads you into what you would call um, compassionate guidance or compassionate acceptance or compassionate correction. So correction is important, right? Compassion isn't letting you off the hook, but it takes that sting, it takes that rage, it takes that anger, it takes that contempt out of the critic so that you say, yes, I didn't do that very well, that I wish I hadn't done that, but I have, now I take responsibility for it, and then I'm going to try and be better next time. Wow. So powerful. Um, so far, we, we have about roughly 10 more minutes here. Uh, and so, so I want to make sure we get to this. So far, in a sense, you've talked about com- coming up, let's say, from shame and inadequacy and depression, uh, in part by reducing the negative, as it were, you know, kind of getting a grip on the impact of that self-monitoring system gone wild of uh, the inner self-critic. How about moving up from getting your nose above the waterline, let's say, to more the upper reaches of feeling self-worth, feeling like you're a good person, uh, having confidence as you go into situations that probably I can make it work here, um, you know, uh, feeling that you deserve, that you're the kind of person who is worthy of love, for example. How do you help people move through this territory? Okay, that's a wonderful question. Uh, One of them is be careful of your language. So one of the things is you can't talk about a human consciousness in terms of worth, right? Because that's a a materialistic concept, you know. How much is my car worth? How much is my house worth? That's okay. But a human being, a nature of consciousness is consciousness that doesn't have worth, either good or... Mm -hmm. So these constructs really... Are important because if you have it today you could lose it tomorrow but in reality we would help people realize that this is not a construct to apply to the self you are a feeling conscious being right as a feeling conscious being you are that there's nothing else uh, so it's not about having worth or not having worth. and personally I discover I, my own personal views particularly if you do some of the contemplations uh, around compassion you begin to see that everybody it's just everybody. We are all these conscious bubbles floating through time and space with these bodies that give us a hard time. That's what it is. There is nothing else. That's what it is. I mean, there may be other things after this. I have no idea. But at the moment, 
we are a consciousness in a body. It, see, so Matthew Ricard says, you know, consciousness is like water. It's pure, mm -hmm. but it can contain a poison or a medicine. But the water must never identify with the poison or a medicine. So your mind, your consciousness, your sense of being can contain anger or love, right? Mm. But itself is, is pure. Now, ideally, what you want to do is to have more love than hate. Of course, that's true. But these are all things that are happening because of the way we are constructed. They are neither worth something or not worth something. They just are what they are. Mm. So we would help people not to use constructs that are always going to allow you to go up or go down. It's not to use these constructs for ranking so you can gain it or lose it. So you can gain deserve or lose deserve. You can gain respect or lose respect. You can have worth or lose worth. That, that's to keep you on this yo-yo mm -hmm. process where you have to keep trying to earn it or not lose it. You, ha you are intrinsically a point of consciousness. You cannot change that. That is what you are. Nobody can take that away from you. That is exactly what you are. And your consciousness is as valuable, as important, as pure as mine. But you might have different content. Uh, that's a lot in that. Um, I mean, I would certainly agree with everything you've said at the level you're saying it, for sure. Uh, I think that people do acquire... Um, uh, you know, a view of themselves and a feeling about themselves as, for example, taken as a person, okay? That as a person altogether, they're, they, they have a sense of, oh yeah, I'm really quite competent in a lot of things. You know, I, when I think about myself in the world and exchanging value, I have a lot of value to offer to others. Or I think there can also be a, a feeling and a recognition for people of <clears throat> their own good intentions, their own pro-social inclinations, their own decency toward others, or there can be a, a view of oneself as tainted, uh, damaged uh, goods, um, you know, a bad person, for example. And, um, I mean, I, I guess I would say I, I agree with you and hear you about the level of consciousness, let's say, that isn't, you know, worthy or unworthy, what have you, but I think people can acquire resources inside over time uh, in which there's a growing sense, um, if we don't want to use the word worth, uh, you know, of, of uh, offerings, value, capability, and, and, that, and that felt sense um, is actually a very important resource for people to draw upon. Uh, and I wondered what you would think about that, particularly, particularly as something that can be developed over time. Yes, no, I think that's right. And what's behind it, right, is that people want to feel lovable. They want to feel, they want to feel connectable. They don't want to feel the outcast, the outsider, the unwanted, the disregarded, the marginalized, the un unloved. So people want to, want to have these sense of worth and so on in order to feel connected, right? Now, you, I think these are important things, and I agree entirely with you. But the thing you have to help people is that if you only are connected because you haven't then it's like you're trying to buy into being connected. You can't experience connectedness unless you have this worth, you have this value, whatever it is. That, that, so that's the issue. Now, the 
the, the point that you're taking, however, is an important one, which is, yes, people need to have some kind of inner experience of self-efficacy, some inner experience of being able, of being able to love, of being able to achieve goals, of able to live a meaningful life, able to follow their ambitions. And I think that is a very important uh, point that you that that you make, and and, and also having wholesome and beneficial uh, qualities in themselves, much as they would regard another person as well. This person really has a lot of uh, wonderful qualities inside: kindness, decency, sense of humor, patience, willingness to accept responsibility rather than deflected. You know, they're motivated to help rather than hurt others. I can see that about them. That's useful to see about others, and it's useful to feel and to see about oneself. That's what I'm talking uh, about. Yes, absolutely. And you're quite right again about that, that you can cultivate that. I mean, we have exercises where we help people do one compassionate thing a day for themselves or for others. We do perspective-taking exercises. It's, I tell you, we did a study about three years ago where we asked depressed patients, because often say, you know, people with depression often said they have low self-esteem. So we decided we would ask them. Now, in our model, depression is to do with the feeling inferior, is to do with competitive dynamics, feeling low rank, low status. So we asked depressed patients, we did a study, we asked them, you know, compared to other people, do you feel like a winner or a loser? Do you feel competent or incompetent? Do you feel able to achieve things in the world or not achieve things? And we asked them, do you feel you're a trustworthy person? Would you try and help other people if you could? Are you somebody that a friend could turn to? And lo and behold, what you found was depressed patients said, yes, I'm a loser, I'm no good, blah, blah, blah. But for the pro-social, they said, no, no, I tried to be a good friend. I might not be, but I try, I'm trying to be honest. Mm. So they didn't have low values of the pro-social qualities. It was only the ability to achieve in the world mm. that turned out to be um, the problem. Yeah. That, you know, I don't think I can achieve. I don't think I can get people to love me. But they would see themselves not necessarily in these terribly negative lights. So, so now some people do, but that was what we found for depression. So the key point that you're making is important because – when people tune in to the good in them, um, it, they will find it. it sometimes you, it's like gold that's fallen in the mud. You can't see it. It's covered up, you know. But if you clean it up, we've had a, been working with some people who have very complicated problems and have done bad things, been in prison. And um, <clears throat> one person quite recently who's been through our compassion training said, you know, I never realized that I had this, capacity to care about other people on the on the ward with me in hospital with me you know but doing the exercises i now realize that i can care about them and i do want to see them and i this is the part of me i want to cultivate i i don't want to be the person i was anymore because i know that I, there is a good there is a good part to me it might only be very small but i can grow it right yeah. so yeah i mean it, you, you're quite right it's helping people see the good in them because it, you know the, the the there's the last Star Wars. I know you know the Star Wars was uh, Luke Skywalker where he modern rescues, myth, right? Yeah, where he rescues the father. Yeah, and he brings the father out. Yeah, he says I needed to rescue. He says you already have. I mean that's a very moving scene. It's a very archetypal scene. But even Darth Vader at the end is rescued by the love of his son. Yeah. So you know. These are, uh, these are archetypal stories, Rick, which are really, really important that people can discover the good in them if they want to. 
but they have to sometimes, you know, for some people, they have to look for it. But generally, people, it's there for people. Yes. Well, thank you. And I, I really do want to say this from my heart, Paul, that uh, one of the things that has been personally important to me in my own journey, let's say, over the last several years, has been to uh, feel that you see the good in me. And I think that's one of, uh, and so one of the, the good qualities I see in you is that you have a great gift at seeing the good in others. And uh, I just want to say that for the record here. Uh, Thank we're gonna you very be, much. Yeah, we're going to be wrapping up soon, and I, but I do want to slip in two last questions that I try to ask everybody. Uh, one is, if you could go back in a time machine, say, to any period you'd care about when you were younger, perhaps when you were in boarding school in your teens or as a young adult there dealing with an injustice, getting depressed, at any time, uh, kind of succinctly here, if you could say something important or some important things to a younger version of yourself, um, what would they be? Yes. I've been thinking about this because you asked me about this question. Right? It's a really tricky, interesting question. There's a part of me that says nothing. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say anything. Yeah. Because it has to be as it was, right? Yeah. There's a part of me that would also say to, to my younger self, it'll be okay. And um, also just, I mean, the compassionate self would say, look, you know, whatever struggles you go through, these are all going to be things in the end can strengthen you to develop your wisdom and always see them as opportunities for learning. Never see them as reasons of, you know, your failure is a kind of, you know, personal, even failures are ways of learning to how to deal with failure, you know. There's an old story that the secret of success is the ability to fail. Because if you can do that, success will look after it yourself. It's when you're frightened to fail that you're in trouble. So I think probably my adult self would just be, you know, not say too much really, just let him get on with it. Mm. Yeah, I got it. It's interesting that you as an adult would have confidence over time that your younger self will actually turn out okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, last question then, if it's okay. Um, what are you working on these days? Uh, what's your own growing edge? How are you developing? What inner strengths are you growing these days? What are you focusing on? Okay, so the key message, I think, as you know, and we talk about this many times when we meet, is humanity has a very, very serious problem with the human brain. And, you know, we haven't really taught our kids about this, that the human brain has evolved to with a whole range of motivational systems for tribalism, sexual lust, violence, alongside the capacities for love and compassion. Right, and um, the reasons that we have the last three thousand years, where humans have done some horrendous things to each other over the last three thousand years, it's not our fault. It's because the brain is the way it is. It's very easy to get good people to do bad things, as Philip Zimbardo would say, right? So one of the things that we're very, very keen on is to get a clear message out there that, you know, we have a serious problem and we we have to start really working together because the context that we create in the world is what feeds the brain. And if we create contexts of poverty and uh, desperation and domestic violence and all of the stuff, the brain will respond to that. 
So we have to create context. We have to learn that just as medicine learned 500 years ago, 400 years ago about the importance of bacteria and started to develop the concept of hygiene, we also need to understand that we can be toxic to each other. We have to learn the, the psychology of how do we create psychologically hygienic environments, right? This is the new thing. And why do you need to do that? Because the brain is tricky, right? So that's the first thing. And the second thing really is we're beginning to look at how you take this message. Once you deceive the train is bricky, tricky through no thought of your own, that then leads you to wanting to train it because if you become mindful and you learn compassion, it will help regulate what is inherently not good design. And if you do that, you can take it into schools, you can take it into businesses. So that's what we're, that's what we're about. This very, very key message, the human brain is a serious problem to humanity. If we don't start working out how to deal with it, we're going to keep having the, the, the ISIS people and, uh, cause we have. We're going to keep having the Rwandas. We're going to keep having people setting bombs off in our cities because this has been going on for thousands of years. Well, not the bombs, maybe, but the same basic ideas. Humans do bad things, right? It's, it's not because they're bad people, but they do. So that's what I'm hoping is to bring, I might do my little bit of helping people understand what they're up against, what we are up against, and to really build a community of people around the world who takes the human brain very, very seriously and thinks, right, Given this is what we are as a species, given this is how it all works, this is how our genes work, what can we do to begin to foster the good in us, create environments that bring out the best in us so that we can learn how to live in harmony? And uh, Because it has to be cultivated. I mean, our brains and our cultures are like gardens. They will grow, right? But they won't necessarily grow the way we want to them unless we cultivate them, unless we feed them the good. And that's your territory, of course. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Paul. Very touching and inspiring. And your little bit is certainly truly a big bit. Um, and it's been a pleasure and a privilege to speak with you here. Dr. Paul Gilbert, Professor of Psychology at the University of Derby, uh, winner of the Order of the British Empire, which always impresses a colonial like myself, <laughs> as well as a great guy, uh, husband and father, and uh, the source of Compassionate uh, focus, compassion rather focused therapy, and, and which has really become an international movement uh, and shifted, I think, the way a lot of us do think about helping people in both formal therapeutic as well as informal ways. So, Paul, again, my gratitude to you and respect and appreciation, and thank you for uh, having this conversation with me. It's my great pleasure, and uh, well done for all the wonderful work you're doing, Rick. Fantastic. <laughs>